Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer and set of offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. Hello and welcome to the latest edition of the Political Party Podcast, this one featuring former Lib Dem Cabinet Minister Chris Hune, someone I've been desperate to interview for a very long time, and someone who, uh, like so many of the people I've interviewed, uh, turned out to be quite different than I expected. Uh, I always knew that he was exceptionally bright, always knew that he was politically sharp, but he was also able to laugh at himself in a way that you're never quite sure until you sit down opposite someone if that's going to be the case. He was absolutely brilliant, and this interview showcases his, his, his wonderful political brain, the depth of his knowledge, but also an ability, I've, I thought, to, to really pay credit to people that he disagreed with, which is um, perhaps a rare trait these days. He was superb. He was really funny. We talked about the election campaign. We talked about Trump. He's got an ability to be able to put today's politics into a global and historical context, which was fascinating. And, of course, we talked about his time uh, in prison and his, his fall from grace. I have to say as well, one of the most impressive people I've ever met, and I think he's 63, doesn't look it one bit. Um, it was one of the most enjoyable interviews I've ever done. He was superb. Do enjoy. Good evening. Hello. Hello, hello. Welcome to the show. Uh, well, uh, interesting times. Uh, give me a cheer if you've uh, been here before. Yeah. Welcome back, regulars. Give me a cheer if this is your first political party. Yeah. Oh, well, excellent. Half and half. Lovely. And let's take a quick opinion poll at the start. Uh, give us a cheer if you're definitely voting in the election next week. Yeah. Excellent. Give me a cheer if you're going to vote Labour. Yeah. Conservative. Yeah. Liberal Democrat. Yeah. <laughs> UKIP. <laughs> Just one fart by the sounds of things. <laughs> Greens. Maybe. Maybe. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> fucking hell. <laughs> Typical green, no energy. <laughs> oh, if I can be bothered to leave the house, yeah. Oh my word. Uh, did we, SMP. Wow. Reluctantly. <laughs> Who was that? Where, give us a wave. Hello there. Oh, is it Neil? Neil's a, a, a friend of mine on Twitter, which <laughs> a heck of an introduction to the room, Neil. Uh, I always got the impression on Twitter, Neil, that you didn't like the SMP. Yeah. <laughs> Neil is Neil, love it. Follow him on Twitter. He's a phenomenal. Um, how would I describe you, Neil? Uh, guy, uh, but shares a lot of detailed information about Scottish politics and economics and all the rest of it. Well, how can we vote in SMP then, Neil? I mean, that's a fair point. Uh, that's a very fair point. Not tempted by Scottish Labour? No. <laughs> and were you tempted at all by Ruth Davidson? No. Well, to vote no, for her. No. <laughs> to vote. Should have made that absolutely clear from the outset. Well, that's very interesting. Uh, Neil, hope to hear from you later in the show. Uh, I tried to make it look like smooth banter. Uh, but welcome you all. Uh, now, there's a slight change to tonight's show. Um, as you know, as many of you may know, the guest meant to be Andy Burnham. Uh, the Mayor of Manchester, for totally understandable reasons. Andy can't be here. I spoke to him yesterday. Um, not only has he got a city to leave, but he's still going around the hospitals and working with the victims' families. So I'm sure we all totally in some way can't be here. Um, I'm very pleased to announce that we 
have a phenomenal replacement, someone I've wanted to interview for a long time, uh, former Cabinet Minister Chris Hume. Very exciting, very exciting. So much to talk about. So what we're going to do, we're going to do two halves of interview. Um, so I'll interview Chris in the first half, we'll have a break, and then we'll continue the interview in the second half. And of course, as always, uh, you get to ask questions uh, at the end of the show, so do think about any questions you would like to ask. Uh, been a phenomenal campaign already, of course. Uh, i tell you what has been interesting is the difference in funding between the parties. The Tories have, have raised something like £20 million more pounds than Labour, but Labour last week received a, a donation of £50,000 from Max Mosley, uh, who is notorious. What you might know of Max Mosley is that he um, was busted for having sadomasochistic sex uh, with prostitutes. Uh, he said it's painful and humiliating uh, of his donation to the Labour Party. <laughs> Has he not suffered enough? Uh, UKIP's manifesto, of course, their number one policy was banning the burqa, but not on racial grounds, but because it restricts the intake of vitamin D. <laughs> to people who wear it, it's on health grounds, that's fine. The Lib Dems, uh, their big uh, pledge, obviously, is to legalise weed. Um, their manifesto went down very well with the pro-cannabis lobby uh, because the pages were very thin and <laughs> glued at one end. So perfect... Perfect for rolling. Uh, they want to tax it, and they say it would raise a billion pounds. Uh, but if they taxed it in the same way that it's taxed tobacco, it would actually raise 1.9 billion pounds. Now, you can argue about the figures till you blew in the face. In fact, if you blew in the face, you're smoking the good stuff. And they, <laughs> they will tax you twice. Um, and, of course, there's so much to talk about with, with our guest tonight. So what can I say about my guest tonight? He was uh, one of the most powerful men in the country, Secretary of State for Energy and Climate Change, stood for the Lib Dem leadership twice, uh, really, one of the major players of the coalition government, one of the most prominent Liberal Democrats of my lifetime, uh, famously <laughs> um, drove a little too fast. <laughs> and people haven't talked about anything else since. Uh, he's an absolute legend. I've just interviewed him uh, for Unspun, which we recorded. Nice to see a lot of people out tonight, actually, as if though there's nothing good on the telly. Uh, LAUGHTER which we just recorded over at London Studios. He's absolutely brilliant. He is one of the brightest minds that British politics has ever produced. And I'm sure we'll have a wide-ranging conversation, not just about the Liberal Democrats and his life, but about the state that we find ourselves in in British politics. Ladies and gentlemen, please give a huge welcome to Chris Hume. Chris, welcome to the show. Oh, pleasure to be here. Slightly surreal as we just had. Yeah. We just had a quick interview. We have. A TV studio around the corner. Time for round two. Uh, time to really spill the beans. Uh, let's start with the election campaign. Uh, a lot of people thought the Lib Dems would be. Would you like some water? Oh, yes, please. I should have poured that, really, shouldn't I? That's all right. You're probably nervous. I'm not. I'm not nervous. I just. I just. You know. I. I, I don't often deal with ex-inmates, so I don't want to piss you off. <laughs> but, you know. If you. I don't want to get glass. <laughs> well, there is a reason. There is a reason why the piano's padded. You know. <laughs> Your cell wasn't there, was it? No. I think they missed a trick. There. <laughs> um, well, we shall come on to that. Um, <laughs> That part of your life. <laughs> uh, in a bit. But in terms of the campaign, why? everyone thought the Lib Dems were going to have a better campaign than they're having. Everyone said they're going to get the 48%. It's th a fantastic campaign. Is it? <laughs> it's an absolutely fantastic campaign. The, 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 the main problem with the Lib Dem campaign 
is that it is the perfect campaign for the next election. <laughs> and the problem is that this election, people aren't really thinking about the things that is in the Lib Dem campaign. But believe me, if, what this a change. if this campaign had been in a year's time, yeah. then it would sweep the country. And I say that without any doubt at all, because if you look at what is happening... There are various things which we don't know about Brexit. We have no idea what is going to happen in the negotiations. It's out of our hands. Big secret in British politics. It's not down to the Prime Minister, strong and stable though she may be. It is down to the 27 other member states as well. And we don't know what's coming down the track. But one thing we do know is the market reaction to Brexit. And in the two days after the referendum result, the pound fell by 10%. And when Margaret Thatcher... Uh, well, not Margaret Thatcher. <laughs> <laughs> What's her name? Ter Ter Theresa May. Theresa May. When Theresa May stood up at the... Well, if, yeah. I always thought if you're going to run a personality cult, it makes sense to have a personality. Sorry, Tories. You know what strong and stable is all about. Um, the reality is that when she stood up at the Tory party conference last autumn, the pound fell another 5%. So the pound is down 15%. Now, we as a country, and this is the boring economics bit, no, I, like I, have to, I have to basically admit to past life as an economist, 15% fall in the pound, a third of everything that we spend money on in this country is imported, you can do the maths, it's very easy. That means that the price level in this country is going up by about 5% just because of that. Nothing to do with Brexit, nothing to do with ta tariffs, just the market reaction already to Brexit. So you take that into account, the reality is that it is just beginning, prices are just beginning to catch up with earnings. And after 10 years, we've had the lowest rise in real incomes of any period in Britain's economic history since the beginning of the Industrial Revolution, to the extent that we actually have the figures going back that far, which is difficult. And we're just about to go into another dive down. And that is why we're having an early election. We're having an early election. Very simple reason. Theresa May knows what's coming down the track. And in a year's time, everybody is going to feel poorer. So that, that economic case actually wasn't tedious at all. It was concise and detailed. Why aren't the Liberal Democrats making that case in the, in the way that you've said? Well, the Liberal Democrats can make that case and do make that case. The problem, obviously, is that the Liberal Democrats get the airtime that is allocated to them. And given the rules have already kicked in on the amount of airtime that everybody gets, uh, and given that the broadcasters give you your 20-second soundbite, uh, that's what you can say and do. And I think that the basic message that people are hearing from the Liberal Democrats is that when we have negotiated Brexit, there ought to be another view. Because we don't know what it's, you know, is it hard Brexit? Is it soft Brexit? Are we getting access to the single market? Are the jobs at Nissan and Sunderland actually going to go down the tubes? Would the people in Sunderland still vote for Brexit if they'd known that that was what was coming down the track? I think people should have another another uh, vote on the outcome when they know what has happened. And that's a very sensible line to take. But you don't think it's sensible until you actually see the squeeze on your real incomes. And that's why I say it's a perfect campaign 
for an election in a year's time. It's quite interesting that you, you sort of misspoke and, and called Theresa May Margaret Thatcher. <laughs> what do you think they have in common? <laughs> but in your mind, do you think I think, people think like that? I think, I think that actually, curiously, uh, they have a lot, an enormous force of character in common, uh, in the sense that to get to her level of politics, and I give her absolute credit for this, Theresa May, she has been very good about supporting other women coming through the Tory party. To get to her level of politics as a woman is very tough. I mean, it's very tough to get to her level of politics as anyone, but as a woman from where she started from in the party that she's in, that is an incredible achievement, frankly. Um, I think what and obviously she has that in common with Margaret Thatcher. I think where there is a difference is that Margaret Thatcher actually liked an argument. <laughs> she went out of a way to create. She was well known. Well, she was well known. She was well known for you know retiring up to her flat in Downing Street with a bottle of whiskey and chewing the card, and she didn't mind if people you know, barked back at her and said, don't agree with you, Margaret, you're entirely wrong. And, you know, she would respect you for that. I don't see that with Theresa May. When I was in the cabinet with her, she was one of only two ministers who didn't want to engage. I mean, inevitably, when you're in the cabinet, you're representing your department, there are certain things that bubble up which need to be resolved. And if the Home Office when she was there, had a particular issue that it was trying to sort out, she was nowhere to be seen. And that was the same. Nick had the same problem. Other people had the same problem. She was basically, whether it was insecurity, whether she was basically... I don't know what it was, but she didn't want to engage in the argument. So what, around the cabinet table, you know, a policing or a security issue would arise... And would she say, no, 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 we're not no talking this about is almost all of government business gets dealt with outside the cabinet room. Yeah. What actually arrives in the cabinet is stuff that's generally been baked beforehand, maybe in a cabinet committee, maybe in bilaterals between ministers. Then it doesn't have to go through even a cabinet committee, it goes to number 10 who will uh, rubber stamp it. Uh, so there's an awful lot of government business which is going on outside the cabinet room. The cabinet room itself is really just the, the rubber stamping exercise. Very, very rare that there was a real discussion in cabinet. And would she then be unattainable? Or would she it have just doesn't want to engage. If, I, if, if we had an issue and um, I was on lots of uh, cabinet committees representing the Lib Dems, including Home Affairs and various other things, if there was an issue that we had, she didn't want to engage. You know, she would leave it, um, wait until you're on holiday, try and get it through the committee <laughs> without you being there. I mean, she was. Just, and I, but would I, she I found that. Calls? Like, how well, you, you always do this through your private office, yeah. and, you know, it was just uh, very difficult. But Nick is an even better person to talk to about this uh, than I am because he had to deal with her all the time as chair of the Home Affairs uh, Committee. So she's, a, she's an operator. You know, she's somebody who is less interested in the rational argument and in getting to what may be the right 
position than in actually just getting through. And I think in that respect, funnily enough, she's different to Margaret Thatcher. I think Margaret Thatcher was genuinely, I think she was wrong, and I fervently disagreed with her at the time on economic policy, for example, when I was leader writing for The Guardian and attacking what she was doing the whole time. But give her credit, she wasn't afraid to argue, and she did get out there and make an argument and she you know so that to that extent she doesn't Theresa May is I think there's a there's a curious lack of self-confidence there's a curious insecurity in her so all this strong and stable stuff hmm <laughs> a bit bizarre I think but that's really ironic isn't it because she obviously has a certain level of confidence to put herself forward for the leadership yeah. and to put herself forward in politics anyway I mean would you ever sit opposite her or, or deal well, remember, with her well remember you know the way she won the leadership well, by default. In it, was it's, by default. Yeah, but never so she, she never actually in. had to put herself... She never had to run a serious campaign. She, she was able to get everybody... Everybody else was effectively dropping out. So it was a, it was a much less gutsy sort of way of winning still, the leadership than, for example, Margaret Thatcher, who threw her hat in the ring when she really didn't think she had mm. a prayer and actually uh, managed to bludgeon her way through and that was much much gutsier way of of, of 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 doing it so i think there are i think there are differences and i think the you know the u-turns i mean you know after all mrs thatcher was the ladies not for turning yeah i don't think you could say the ladies not for turning about theresa may but our- and we've had the national insurance contributions uh we've social had care. social care you know the list of u-turns is but, it would, I mean, obviously this is slightly unprecedented that it's happened during an election campaign, but parties U-turn all the time, don't they? I mean, this is the stuff of politics. Yeah, I think it's actually quite interesting as to how, how, when you can get away with it and when you can't, and what promises you can make and break. And I thought a lot... Um, oh, if you could have... Everyone's mind went to the same place at that point. <laughs> <laughs> I think um, one of the bizarre things which you think about a lot, and I, one of the things that um, I certainly thought about in terms of our time in government yeah. was the way in which we handled the broken promise on student tuition fees, mm. which I thought was, you know, in retrospect, absolutely a massive problem. <laughs> uh, a, a massive problem. Was it a problem and, when you promised it? <laughs> it was a problem in both the promise and the breaking. Did you at any point think... I didn't, I, I, I didn't have a, a student constituency. I didn't have my picture taken signing it. The promise, uh, the, the pledge. The promise, the pledge. Uh, and I was absolutely delighted to be in Cancun at the climate change talks on the day of the vote, much to the consternation of... Um, Alistair Carmichael, the chief whip, who was desperate to get me back and have my hands plunged into the blood. Um, and, 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 All rituals in the Olympics. And, <laughs> and famously, Alistair at a, 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 a political dinner uh, subsequently said, Chris, you can cunt. <laughs> That was before you'd gone there. <laughs> he's, yeah, he's, a, he's a man who put the tea into Cancun. <laughs> that was it. So, uh, uh, anyway. <laughs> Obviously, it, it, it was a sort of peculiar period, really, because you and Clegg had been rivals yeah. for the leadership. Yeah. 
And it's that stunning moment, I think it's on the Sunday politics, where John Sopel produces this briefing that yeah. had apparently been done by his calamity Clegg. Yeah. And you know what I thought watching that? I remember it from the time I was thinking, Nick Clegg definitely knew. Because he does this sort of acting where he goes, oh, Oh, what on earth is this? And sort of like, oh, well, I've never read such horrible things about this. You think you knew about this. You probably told them about it. Who knows? But you're always going to brief against each other in a leadership, aren't you? Did you know that briefing was going out against Clay? I, the one thing in that briefing which I did not know about um, was the headline. And the headline was the one thing that got publicity. Yeah. And it was actually, it was genuinely what I said at the time, which was a particularly overzealous young researcher who had been given the brief of finding all of the quotes from Nick where he had done flip-flops, U-turns, <laughs> on different policy issues. And it was literally one side of A4 where he had said this in one sense, that, and it went down about five issues. And there was nothing else. It was just quotes from Nick Clegg. And he put the headline on it, Calamity Clegg. And I did not know about that, and, and I think when it was sent through for email, it, that part did not appear, so the head of my campaign, press person, didn't know about it either, and so it went out like that. And that was what got done. And was so, that, does that rankle you more as a former journalist having your byline changed than it does? <laughs> <laughs> well, I think, um, no. I mean, I think the reality is that it's, uh, you know, one of those things that you just have to live with. Because you have to attack... If you're in a leadership contest, it's unthinkable that you wouldn't openly brief against each other because part of the Well, no, people... You know, you, in, there are strict rules about this, and one of the things you never do is openly brief against a colleague, you know. <laughs> I mean, I had in the first leadership campaign... Uh, against Ming Campbell. Against Ming Campbell. Everybody was saying in the press and desperately trying to get me to say Ming was too old. Yeah. And I can particularly remember sitting on a TV sofa in Scotland with me. He was asleep. And, and he, <laughs> he, was, he, he was wide awake. We were both wide awake. And the interviewer decided the issue of the moment was, uh, well, Mr. Hewn, yeah, is it true you think Bing Campbell is far too old to be the leader? And I said, um, well, actually... Mink Campbell is the same age as Mick Jagger. It's absolutely ridiculous <laughs> to think that he's too old. So you can never, ever make a criticism yeah. publicly because apart from anything else, you have to work together afterwards. So, you, you know, there are ways of papering these things over. Uh, Ming, I have to say, didn't like the comparison with Mick Jagger. Um, and I was slightly surprised when I was sort of thinking of how I was going to handle this particular question because it was inevitable that it was going to come up. Um, looking up the age, and indeed, you know, Mick Jagger and Mink Campbell are the same age. I mean, I have to say Mick's probably a bit fitter, uh, <laughs> despite, you know, Ming's Olympic prowess. But, yeah. um, Ming's a bigger shagger, though, isn't he? I am. <laughs> that I can... I have... You clearly have more inside information about this than I do. I was fishing. <laughs> <laughs> but that must have... It, it must be hard to, to stand for leadership twice and, and lose. I mean, did... When you think about the reasons you lost to Ming Campbell, the reasons... Well, I could have stood three times and lost. That would have been even worse. But you'd have probably, would you have won the third time, do you think? I don't know. I doubt it. <laughs> <laughs> given, given the water under the bridge. You know. But then had you... Going the second time, it, it was logical. You were one of the biggest names in the Liberal Democrats. Is there any part of you that thought the second time um, 
about reputational damage or how? how uh, what is the wound to the pride? No, the first the first time round, I had no idea I was going to do as well as I did. Um, and what basically happened first time round is I was putting down a marker, mm. and uh, that was it. And lots of people do that in leadership elections, and they basically put down a marker. And particularly, I wanted to make sure that the party addressed the green issues because. The green issues are really important for the Liberal Democrats. They're an absolutely crucial part of our policy makeup. Yeah. And yet, to date, we've not had a leader for whom that is an absolutely get out of bed in the morning issue. Normally, people go into politics, they join a political party, uh, they accept all of the things within that political party's baggage, particularly if they're a leader, they have to defend it. But there are usually, if you're lucky, on the progressive side of politics, there may be one or two issues that actually make you want to be a Lib Dem or a Labour supporter or whatever. You know, if it's inequality, if it's civil liberties, if it's the green issue, whatever. And we had not, to that point, had somebody who was passionate about green issues, as I am. And I wanted to make sure it was... Yeah. There in the leadership campaign, uh, because part part of it is actually believing that parties need to have once again a sense that particularly progressive parties need to have a sense that there are serious groups of people who stand for things. Mm. And when I was brought up, you know, as a kid uh, at a time when the Labour Party had identifiably serious political figures who you knew stood for particular wings of the party, had particular uh, views, and whoever was the party leader, whoever was subsequently the Prime Minister, had to have them in the Cabinet. It would have been impossible for Harold Wilson not to have Roy Jenkins mm. as the most pro-European leader of that faction within the Labour Party in the Cabinet. He could not have left out... Uh, Dick Crossman or uh, Barbara Castle from the left of the party. So that's a, it's very important, I think, in, the, in a progressive party that there are people who actually stand for real issues and who people who also care about those issues can look to to make a real case. So in terms of the Lib Dems and their relationships with the, the green issues, there, there, a lot of talk at this election about a progressive alliance, that, that people who want to vote SNP or Labour Lib Dem Green should unite uh, and coordinate to just unseat or prevent a Tory. Do you think, firstly, that is something that is wise? Secondly, is it something you would support? And thirdly, what about the Lib Dems' relationship, specifically with the Green Party? I mean, do you look to the Green Party as a progressive party? Well, I think the problem with the Green Party is that it ha lost, it, it, it loses sight of the need to go through the process of actually making things happen. Um, I believe in the objectives, and I share a lot of the objectives of the Green Party on green issues, but I think that they will deliberately go out of the way to put forward uh, means for meeting those objectives, which are almost guaranteed to alienate a very substantial number of the people who a bigger political party would need to have on side. So hair, shirt, greenery, you know, <laughs> the real, oh boy, you're not really being ecological until 
this is really hurting. You know, <laughs> we're going to give up the car. We're going to, you know, foreign holidays. That would hit me. That would hit me very hard. And, and even if it was electric, or those, those Teslas, I can tell you. Uh, that was, as, uh, some people get driven out of office. I drove myself out of office. Uh, but I, I, I think that the Green Party has that problem, that it, it is so unrealistic about the need to get, dare I say it, Mondeo Man, on board as part of this coalition, uh, that, that actually, in the end, you don't achieve anything. You know, you're, what the French call it is pure et dur. You're so hard and pure that actually, in the end, you're not a functioning, effective Democrat. So you've got to build a coalition. But it's not the Progressive Alliance, in your view. That's not well, the right answer. come back to that issue. I was, uh, particularly when I worked for The Guardian for 10 years and um, you know, was involved in all of the, the SDP split mm. and all the rest of it, and had been a member of the Labour Party um, you know, in the late 70s, early 80s. So I'd been there, done that, bought the T-shirt for all that sort of uh, stuff. But we went through, once the SDP had split, once there was an alliance with the Liberals, we went through all of that thinking. How do we get back into a situation where this fractured progressive set of forces could actually beat the Conservatives? And the real problem is, and again in France, they've already done this, they've been there, uh, in the old days in France, because they have a first-past-the-post system like ours, but they have two rounds, what used to happen is that the Communist Party candidate would stand down in favour of the Socialist Party candidate, and in exchange, various Socialist Party candidates would stand down in favour of the Communist Party candidate. And on the right, the UDF liberal centrists would stand down in favour of the Golis party and the Golis party candidates would stand down in favour of the more centrist party. And what you saw was that almost all the communist votes went to the socialists, but only about half of the socialist votes went to the communists uh, in the second round. Yeah. And you saw the same thing on the right. Almost all the far-right votes went to the centrist right-wingers but the, only half of the centrist right-wing votes. A lot of the centrist right-wingers preferred to vote for the socialist candidate. A lot of the socialist candidate uh, supporters preferred to vote for the centre-right rather than vote for the communists. So, and this, there's a word for it in French which is called Republican discipline. Yeah. And Republican discipline didn't work. And my, my issue always about this, you know, can you put together... Yeah a pact is that you would end up scaring quite a lot. If you were to ask Liberal Democrats to vote Labour, for example, publicly, yeah. you would end up scaring quite a lot of Liberal Democrat supporters into voting Conservative. Well, and that would actually end up not benefiting. And a lot, and similarly, you, you would find the same with UKIP and the Tories, probably. Yeah. So um, I think it's not as easy. People don't do as they're told <laughs> in politics. Uh, they make up their own minds. And there's, there's been one example of a successful pact, but it was a very, very different circumstance yeah. in the UK, and that was way back in 1905, 1906, when the Liberal Party actually 
withdrew mm. from often two-seater constituencies, because we had two-seater constituencies at the time in favour of a member who was supported by the Labour Representation Committee and the Labour Party. Uh, that was probably, in retrospect, not a great idea, <laughs> given what happened to the yeah, Liberal Party subsequently. But you know, that is the only example that I can think of uh, which was a successful successful, And it was secret. Yes. It was negotiated between the two chief whips. It was never made public until after the election. Uh, but it did succeed in electing more Labour and more Liberal MPs than would have been the case otherwise. There's also, isn't there, a sort of miscalculation with the Progressive Alliance, or whatever you want to call it, is that it misunderstands why people vote for particular parties. It's not that people are necessarily anti-Tory, but Liberal Democrat voters have a distinct identity that they want out of a party compared to Labour voters. You know, you might get some white working class, quite right-wing Labour voters voting for Labour on class issues historically, and then actually some quite libertarian, borderline conservatives voting for Liberal Democrats, particularly in seats to keep Labour out. So this sort of presumption that the parts that we call progressive necessarily have progressive supporters. It's something actually the Labour Party is having to come to terms with, is that the erosion of the white working yep. class Labour vote in yep. particular. Well, I think it's a great mistake to think of politics as a left-right spectrum. Mm. I mean, I have for a long time thought of politics as a circle. And uh, Almost like a sort of speed warning sign. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> with, a, with, a big, with a big, yeah, a big diagonal across it. Um, and that, basically, that circle first came, again, I'm sorry to keep using French examples, but the first place in any of the democracies where it became apparent was when the French Communist Party went into serious decline after 89. A lot of its support did not go to the socialists. It actually went to the Front National, to the right-wing party. And if you then interviewed, as some political scientists did, you interviewed... uh, working-class former supporters of the Communist Party, they didn't actually see that it was that big a jump. Mm. And if you looked at the programmes of the two parties, the great thing was that the French Communists always had a really nationalist programme, which was actually quite similar to the programme of the, uh, of, of, of the Front National. So, for example, they weren't going to have any of that namby-pamby Corbynista stuff about getting rid of the bomb... The French Communist Party was all in favour of nuclear weapons. And the really big difference is that Georges Marchais, the leader of the French Communist Party, used to say, I tell you, what we're going to do is we're going to have the nuclear deterrent and we're going to point it in all directions. <laughs> and that was, the, that was the French line. And, you know, that was absolutely attractive to, uh, to people who would then disappear and vote for the Front National. So, and you saw that again. You then saw it in Belgium. You've seen it now with yeah. the UKIP support coming from Labour, from the white working yeah. class. So politics is a circle. And there is an authoritarian and an anti-authoritarian side. And there is a left-right economic side in mm-hmm. terms of distribution, tax and spend. And distribution of tax and spend is only one dimension of the choices. And I think that the, the really fascinating thing about politics at the moment is that there is this extraordinary you know, amount of shifting around, so where do you which is much more rational. Where do you plot people. yourself on that matrix? Well, I'm, I'm uh, a very classic social liberal. So um, I'm all in favour of uh, 
the John Stuart Mill principle that if it doesn't hurt anybody else, then you should not get involved in it as a Unless government. they want it to hurt, and then that's fine. Uh, <laughs> if, they, if, 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 if that's absolutely fine. And, he would, and you know, but, but you've got to make sure that they really do. Um, uh, because sometimes that doesn't always... Uh, I'm told. Uh, so, but I do think... And on social liberal things, I'm, I'm a classic Lloyd George liberal. I mean, I'm, you know, Lloyd George introduced the first old age pension. Uh, Beveridge and Keynes, the two greatest thinkers who informed the Labour government of 45-51, were both liberals to their dying day. Beveridge and the Lords, uh, the founder of the welfare state, did all the heavy lifting in intellectual terms. He uh, was the leader of the Liberal Party and the Lords in the 1950s. So... Those traditions are very, very close. And my mother's family, you know, classic Welsh liberals, who then went into the Labour Party uh, because the Labour Party was the anti-Tory party and was there to do progressive things. What does a Labour government do? Uh, you know, let, socialism is what a Labour government does. Um, do you ever wish you'd stayed in the Labour Party? Well, uh, a lot of water under the bridge. I, I think that looking back at the 1980s, and it's perhaps relevant today, I think it is much more difficult to reform things than people sometimes think. And so those moderate Labour MPs who are seriously toying with a split, there is a massive problem given by the electoral system, which is that almost inconceivable, however bad the Labour leader is, however crazy the Labour manifesto is. And in 1983, the Labour manifesto wasn't just getting rid of nuclear weapons when we still had uh, the Soviet Union. It was nationalising the top 100 companies, uh, and it was getting out of Europe, okay? So all these things which are now totally mainstream. Um, (laughs) And, and, um, you know, at the time, I thought... This was really pretty uh, crazy, and I think that it would be nevertheless inconceivable that Labour could win fewer than 150 seats. I mean, 150 seats is at the rock bottom, bedrock. I mean, if I, I find that very, very hard. I mean, remember that in 1983, longest suicide note in history. Michael Foote being absolutely monstered by the Tory tabloids for sort of turning up in a donkey jacket at the cenotaph, all of this sort of stuff, you know, really hitting all of the notes designed to rattle traditional working class Labour supporters. Nevertheless, Labour won 24% of the vote and uh, 200 and something seats. So, you know, more than 200 seats. So 150, I really think, even in current circumstances, is bedrock. And I think that I'm surprised. I'm, I was wrong about Brexit. I was wrong about Trump. Maybe Corbyn is going to be the next prime minister. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. 
Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full important safety information, visit juviderm.com. You didn't see Trump coming in, you didn't see Brexit coming yeah. in. Is that partly because the polls at the time were telling you that the results were going to be different? No, I don't think they were. I think that there's something funny going on, which in, when I'm feeling really uh, gloomy about the state of politics, which I certainly was after Trump and I certainly was after Brexit, I think that uh, politics is potentially becoming much less serious. I mean, for most of my political life, and when I was a sort of, you know, 20-something activist uh, and pounding the streets and losing elections, because I lost three parliamentary elections um, and a council election before I was actually elected anywhere, the old-fashioned way... um, the reality was that people thought politics was, a vast majority of people thought, whatever the disagreements that you had in politics, it's a very serious business. Running the state is a very serious business. These are real political choices. And what I see now is a substantially bigger number of people uh, than before who actually seem to think it's a branch of reality TV that they're basically saying, well, hang on a minute. I mean, it's not everybody. Yes, yeah, political TV is good, right? But, and something. <laughs> but, uh, but, you know, they, they, they see politics. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I tell you, the last lot of ratings, he needs it. Right? <laughs> so, uh, the, I, you know, I think that worries me. It worries me that, um, and it's actually not oddly, what, what is even more worrying is that it's not even irrational because the chances of your individual vote mattering in any given constituency or in a presidential election or in a state that elects you know, the Electoral College is absolutely infinitesimal. So if you want to just be expressive in your vote and say, oh, I think that Trump guy is saying the sort of thing I care about, you know, let's go and vote for Donald because he's really going to sort drain the swamp, you know. Never mind that the guy has no experience, that he, you know, the sort of question he would ask on his first foreign trip is Belgium, north or south of France. (laughs) I mean, don't worry about these things. You know, that worries me. It worries me that there is a sort of levity that people are now approaching politics with, which I personally find really sad. 
Do you think Brexit's part of that, or is that a separate? Yeah, no, I think Brexit is part of that. So I think, think so. Brexit. I think Brexit. Bre I think Boris is definitely part of that. And I, I have to say, I my first uh, inkling of the power of Boris was in jail, and I was. <laughs> And I was, I was sharing, I was sharing a cell uh, with somebody who proudly announced that he had never voted in an election. He was only twenty something, as a lot of people in jail are, and he he uh, had never voted for in, for anything. Didn't care about, it. and it. But the television was on all the time, and Boris popped up in an interview, and he said, "Oh, I rather like him. He's talking my language." So well. <laughs> You might have thought you might have thought that was an Indian accent. But actually, uh, you know, he 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 really thought that Boris was talking his language. He was authentic, and so there was a complete cut through. And I think Boris cut through to a lot of people who were uninterested in politics, who actually, you know, decided that why not give it a whirl seems to be talking sense, my sort of language. And, you know, despite the fact that Boris is, uh, sounds like a toff, is a toff, he's an authentic toff. <laughs> or a fairly authentic toff, anyway. I mean, you know, he's, he, he, he's an old Etonian or whatever. And so I think that's what, I think there is an element of that. I think there's a real element of that. And I think David Cameron, always a bit of a chanter, mm. decided when he called the referendum, you know, that he was going to be able to charm Boris onto his side, probably didn't... I think, without Boris, I think Brexit would not have won. Wow. I, think it's, I think Boris was absolutely key to delivering the vote. Uh, is he different? You've been in politics, you've, you've seen him behind, uh, behind the scenes, I'm sure. Is he different off-camera or off-stage? Um... Well, I can't say I'm a great bosom buddy with, uh, <laughs> uh, with, with Boris. Um, and the last time I ran into him was at a mutual friend who was having a very large party. And um, his uh, circle of acquaintances included both Boris and me. We were both queuing to get our coats out. It was just shortly after the referendum. And I have to admit, I was so angry about the referendum, particularly... Um, because of the way in which the Tories and the Leave campaigners were so light about taking away people's rights. And I see my own children, who are all in their sort of, you know, 20s and early 30s, just the ability to think that they have, can go anywhere and work anywhere in the European Union and that that is no longer going to be the case. Uh, I, you know, I find that, just as a liberal, I find that truly shocking, that we so lightly, through an advisory referendum, which, by the way, was advisory, unlike the AV referendum, which was a statutory referendum, which would, if it had gone the right way, have triggered legislation, this was a, an advisory referendum that did not trigger legislation, and so the government could easily then have finessed things around the single market and the Norwegian solution. Mm -hmm. But to treat people's rights alike, so I had to go at him in a bloody thing. And um, this dinner party? Uh, no, no, <laughs> we were queuing for coats. There was a large, <laughs> at the end of a large drinks party. Yeah. 
and I had a go at him, and, and Boris, uh, you know, um, said, oh, there's nothing, oh, no, enormous opportunities, fantastic trading opportunities. Hey, <laughs> Boris, it's got, I fucking well do it. The fact is, people are not going to be able, even if they want, you know, e even if they never want to work anywhere else, or never want to live anywhere else in Europe, and, but don't underestimate it. I mean, those of you who remember Alf Wiedersehen pet, <laughs> you know, I mean, actually, that's a real freedom yeah. for people. And we took it away from them. And so here we are on our benighted little island, stuck, unable to actually go and work somewhere else in the EU. I mean, I think that's a terrible thing to do to people. And so I was very angry with it. He, he you know, blustered in a classic Boris way, got on his bike and... And there were some roadworks. <laughs> there were some roadworks outside this event with some guys um, with high vis jackets, and they say, "Oh, Boris, go for it, mate, go for it." Was George Osborne? <laughs> <laughs> Probably was. Probably was. That's, what a fascinating image, you two sort of queuing up the uh, jackets. Other people saying, "Yeah, mine's the Harrington." Yeah, so you two sort of. Cabinet and former cabinet ministers going at it. In well, no, he was never in the cabinet. Not in our time, anyway. Boris was remember well, he'd been mayor of London. He'd been sent to Siberia. Oh, well, the mayor of London. <laughs> uh, and and um, you know he was kept well away from anything that it was thought he could mess up <laughs> until now. Until now, yeah. So was he? Was he? Did he try and laugh it off? Was he a oh, couple Chris? No, yeah, no, he, he did. Totally he, no, he did. wrong. He, no, you can just admit. He did. Do not. Is what, this the what I did, of the matter? I did it. You do not. Do not. Come. I did it. I. This is just. Is it not? I never even get to the point, Chris. You don't. No, no, no. Let me. Can we make it clear? Can we not? That. Brilliant, Boris. No, no, no. Come on. Or was he? Look. No, no, no. I, yeah, no. No, he was. He <laughs> that is absolutely. <laughs> I mean, he, he was absolutely that. I mean, he just doesn't. Boris has, um, I think, very little depth in terms of. Um, <laughs> I mean, uh, you know, he'll, he'll, he's fantastically good. I don't know anybody in politics who's better at deflecting a difficult question with a joke, with a classical quotation. Uh, you know, I mean, it's, he's the sort of Eric Cantona of, of, of uh, all those quotes that maybe you can understand. Um, what was it? The duck Se follows seagulls, the, the seagulls. The reason the seagulls follow the troll is because they know the fish are going to be thrown into the sea. Yeah, but in Latin. <laughs> and that, uh, uh, and that, you know, I mean, that's Boris. And, uh, you know, it is just, it's really, and he, I, I got the impression from that particular, because only a few days after the referendum, and I got the impression that he hadn't really thought about that aspect of it, because it wasn't a part of the campaign. I mean, you know, people's rights to live and work elsewhere in Europe were not a part of the campaign, which is an outrage, thinking about it, given the, how personal you know, those rights actually are for people. And, you know, we, I just think referenda are just dreadful. I mean, this is not the party line. So <laughs> we're all in favour of referenda, as long as we can have another one and it goes the right way. Uh, but, you know, in, the, in British politics, for years, we were inoculated against referenda because they were a continental conspiracy against sensible government. Mm. And the first person who inoculated us against it was uh, Louis Napoleon. 
who subsequently, for reasons I never quite understand, maybe the French can't add up to three properly, but became Napoleon III without there ever being a Napoleon II. But he went Napoleon I and Napoleon III, but he was elected as President of France in 1848 and proceeded to have masses of referenda, including things like, can I be emperor? Yes! <laughs> 95%. Unlike um, Enver Hodja in Albania, I don't think he ever managed to get 101% approval <laughs> in a referendum. But, you know, referenda are dreadful. They, because they don't allow you. You know, they're, they're a very simple, a simple answer. They don't allow you to make trade-offs. And in any society which is as complex, any society actually could be a village, you know, but in any society as complex as ours, you can't just ride roughshod through people's rights, their interests. There have to be trade-offs. And you've got to negotiate those. That's what Parliament is about. Isn't there a problem as well, actually, in terms of the tone in which, the time in which we're living in, is that they don't settle matters, they inflame them. And referenda post, let's say, 2010, have actually led to a far more divided United Kingdom than had we not had the Scottish referendum in 2014, and the, the referendum of last year. Actually, Britain would be a more harmonious place had we not yeah. been through those very divisive, rash experiences. Yeah. I think, in terms of the Scottish referendum, I think it's very, very hard to resist politically the referendum on that. And actually, an issue as clear-cut as do you want to do in or out of an existing political entity is relatively fundamental. But obviously that would never... you know. I mean, there are limits there too because you could never have had a referendum which would have settled Ulster mm. because obviously you know, the Protestant community in Northern Ireland don't recognise the legitimacy of the vote south of the border and the vote of the Catholics north of the border don't recognise the legitimacy of a referendum which would only be in Ulster. So uh, you're talking here, I mean, there's actually literature about this stuff, but the, about what are the fundamentals that you need to have in place for a democracy to work. And one of the things that is absolutely fundamental is you need to have a settled agreement about what the borders are. If, the, if you don't agree on the borders, as the Irish do not agree on the borders on the island of Ireland, then actually there isn't a democratic solution that you can put to referendum we can put to a vote. It has to be uh, worked through in another way. And I think there are other fundamental things. I think if, if some people's interests within a society are so threatened that they give up a belief in the democratic process, and that's happened for example, I think it happened with the uh, Salvador Allende government in Chile, where the middle class felt so threatened by the property confiscation program of the Allende government that actually they thought democracy was less important than protecting their property rights recognised in the rule of law and they end up you know, holding their nose but supporting Pinochet. So there are, I think that democracies need to be very cautious about what things can change and what things have to be built into the settlement. And I think the problem with treating the European Union a referendum as lightly as we have done in the way David Cameron took it and the Scottish referendum 
is that you're beginning to tear up some of the things which actually are a part of what in a normal country would be a constitutional settlement that would require not a 50% vote, but probably a two-thirds vote plus a two-thirds majority in, the, in Congress, for example. You know, you can't change the US Constitution in the way that we have just changed a very important part of the British Constitution on a majority vote in a referendum. Another facet of the period we're living in is this, this sort of anti-establishment. It's not just about entertainment, as you rightly identify, and how Boris is like Trump, but this anti-establishment vibe. Now, in this election, Jeremy Corbyn is the anti-establishment candidate. I mean, the polling out this morning suggests there might be a hung parliament. Do you think that Corbyn can do a Trump and win? Well, I think that, I, I mean, as I've already admitted... My uh, calls on both Brexit and Trump are hopeless. <laughs> so my opinion on this is worth precisely zero. Okay? But on the back of Trump and Brexit, I would have to say that I think that analysis is absolutely correct. Theresa May, whatever else she is, is a classic member of the establishment. And she's a strong and stable member of the establishment. <laughs> but she is a member of the establishment. Jeremy Corbyn, whatever else he is, is a classic anti-establishment figure. And it may be that that is actually what people decide they want. What the hell? I mean, look what they did with Trump, for Christ's sake. I mean, Trump was a mad decision. Mad, mad decision. And it was maddest of all for the people who, the former blue dog Democrats yeah, in yeah. the Rust Belt states, you know, they're going to be the ones who really get it in the neck. Look at his budget. I mean, he's taking 23 million poor people out of health care, and all the cuts are coming on, those, on the back of those people, and all the advantages in terms of the tax cuts are going to people like, surprise, surprise, Donald Trump. I mean, fortunately, it's unlikely to get through Congress as is, but the reality is people have been seriously misled, and I think people can be misled again. Isn't there a new dimension as well, that, that people are willing to vote against their economic self-interest to feel something. That people say, well, look, if it's crap anyway. I remember Pat McFadden saying in the documentary after Brexit that he'd knocked on doors in Wolverhampton. He said, I knocked on this gay's door and I said, it's about the economy. He said, why would I care about the economy? I'm a single gay with a dog. <laughs> <laughs> now, isn't there an element of that as well that people say, well, actually, it's going to be shit anyway, so I'm going I'm 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 to sort of fuck you. I'm going I'm yeah. to deliver to... The, the sort of political class, the result they don't want. Yeah. I'm going to turn yeah. over Apple cards. Yeah, I think that might well be the case. And I think that actually, as a solution, I mean, the French historically did this by going onto the streets and having a revolution. And maybe it's a sort of modern democratic version of going on the streets and throwing cobblestones. Um, and maybe that is... But I come back to the point about reality TV. I also think it's, it's, it's perhaps an example of affluenza. Basically, we have become affluent enough in reality that we can afford to risk these things. And also, you say, well, hang on, my vote's not good. You know, the chances of my little vote actually making any difference anywhere, even if you're in a marginal, you know, the chances of your individual... I always thought it was very mysterious, actually, that we all you know, perform our civic duty and go out and troop out and vote, because the chances of your actual individual vote making any difference are very minimal. But do get out and vote, guys. It's really important. <laughs> 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 do, 
do it. I mean, I mean, this is when I'm feeling gloomy. Yeah. But I think, you know, the point is, I think there, I think that people can, can be more irresponsible than the political class would like to believe. I, w- I was thinking, I was, I've been all interviewed trying to find a way to segue into this next sort of section. You, you, oh, you, go you've on. You've given me away because, because actually there was a period in your life where the right to vote was taken away. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now, I mean, actually, there were no elections during that period. So. No, no, but had there been? Had there been? <laughs> had there been? I mean, it is. When I think of the coalition government uh, and I, I sort of think of the, the Rose Garden. <laughs> My next memory of it is, is what you went through and, and oh. that whole thing. And, and so That's rather worrying. Well, I've watched a lot of the news. Um, <laughs> what, what really strikes you about it, as with a lot of scandals or whatever you would call them, controversies, is that at the time they feel so serious and there's moral outrage and there's judgment. Now with the passage of just a handful of years, you think, it all seemed like a fuss over nothing. Like actually what you did was, so many people must do it, it really wasn't the crime of the century. Well, it was a pretty... No, uh, I have to admit, it wasn't the crime of the century. Um, but it was a pretty stupid thing for me to do. And the curious thing is, you know, looking back, I mean, I was just... I, I should definitely... Uh, if... if uh, what is the expression you say if I could rewind the clock? But I think that's a serious motoring offence too. <laughs> so, so, but, so, so perhaps I, I shouldn't do that. Um, but... You know, I think I think uh, I, I think it's uh, just one of those things. I mean, there's a curious randomness about life, and I think sometimes you get caught up in things. I mean, you can see it in an entirely different way, which is that basically I had the messiest divorce in British political history. Uh, That's you know, really saying something. I thought that is saying something. I mean, it's quite crowded field, and for anybody, you know. I take in the example of Boris, um, who's actually never been through it, but he's been through a lot of other car crashes. But, it, uh, <laughs> but it's, uh, it, it's just, I mean, one of the things which people who go into political life probably don't think about when they start off is the implications for living your life out in the public glare. And so all of the things which are likely to happen to you, falling in love, Falling out of love, falling in love with somebody else, the first person who you fell in love with, feeling that love was betrayed, you know, all of those things actually are happening with immensely higher stakes. And what can you say? It's, it, it, it's a very philosophical way to put it, and I, I think a lot of people actually project values onto politicians that they don't even holding themselves and I think there's a, there's a lot of hypocrisy in our relationship with our political class that we expect better behaviour from people that we wouldn't expect from others um, I just wonder about well I'll put it a slightly different way which is that you're that in general what happens uh, is that in a lot of a, a lot of real life you don't get the temptations which can arise in politics and you're tested more mm. And so probably, for example, when it came across, uh, you know, when it came things like um, the expenses, I think well, it's just crazy. And people were doing things which they would never have dreamed of yeah. doing and would not have done in, in another walk of life. And for all sorts of justified just, you know, justifications, like 
well, they didn't give us a pay rise, we, you know, all that sort yeah, of stuff. Yeah. And in the end, you know, everybody's doing <coughs> it. And you saw exactly the same thing with Fossil Fuel in France. Yes. Everybody was doing it. That's not a defense. But you know, it's not a defense. And so I can't turn around and say, okay, so 400,000 other people, according to RAC surveys, did swap speeding points. That's not a defense. But then there's the element, the, the breakdown of your personal relationship, which was a heartbreaking for anyone and a very difficult thing to go through, whatever side of that you're on. There's then just the reality of incarceration. I think for a lot of people it's their worst nightmare. I, I, I have well, the easy answer to that is anybody who's been to a British public school is well prepared. I think the more, serious, uh, the more serious answer is probably that... Um, I, you know, the reality is, curiously, I, I went into politics very late, mm. which was part of the reason why I was stupid enough to do the uh, speeding point thing, because I was... Rushing centrally. <laughs> rushing together <laughs> and catching up and, 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 you know, wanting to get selected yeah. in this seat, and, and I needed the, the car to get around to do that and all the rest of it. So, you know, that was part of the problem. Um... And I was, already, of an I, was, I was already, I was already in my forties. I was just trying to raise skill. <laughs> <laughs> and I think that that uh, that that sort of issue is one that you um, you just have to live with. I mean, it's one of those sort of um, uh, stupidities that I obviously regret and um, shouldn't have got involved with. But um, they all kind of. In terms of. The prison experience, then, because I've, I've read, I, I read a lot of political biographies. I think you deserve a bit of time. <laughs> I think you should experience this for yourself. <laughs> Actually, one of the things I do think, I think it'd be very, very useful, probably incognito, yeah. for judges to spend a little bit of time in jail. Yeah. I, I think for politicians as well, curiously, to actually understand it, because I think that the we lock up more people mm. than anybody else in Europe as a percentage of our population. And I'm absolutely convinced, I was convinced before, one of the things that has not changed, in my view, is that we lock up far too many people. People who ought to be sent to prison are either people who have repeatedly offended and there is no other option, or people who have committed violence of some form. And my views on that have not changed and were reinforced by getting into prison. I think prison is basically a college of crime. A lot of people go in there for any length of time, come out with better skills at doing bad things than they had when they went in. So what did you learn? (laughs) (laughs) I thought we were going to discuss that later. (laughs) But did did it sort of toughen you up in any way or make you streetwise, for want of a better phrase? Um... Actually, the curious thing about it is that uh, I mean, I don't, you know, I don't go on about it because, frankly, and I've not done any great, you know, books about prison experience because it was two months for Christ's sake. I feel almost a phony. If you think of people, you know, who've been in jail for much longer for much more serious things, and that was by comparison prison tourism, you know that you're going to be out in two months. Like health tourism. You can, actually, you, can actually, you can actually sort of, you know, pace it out there. But I can honestly say, I mean, certainly arriving in Wandsworth. Uh, Did you know, spend that on the back of those Group 4 vans? Mm-hmm. I, I can't remember if it was Group 4 or a security. <laughs> oh, I'll, I'll ask. <laughs> I, 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 you know, you arrive in Wandsworth and uh, it is an old-fashioned 19th century jail and it is spooky and it is 
But I have to say that I think the warders were more worried about keeping me safe than I was about being safe, because the one thing they did not want to happen is for somebody who was an ex-cabinet minister to be found, you know, face down at the bottom of the steps uh, the following morning. So there was an enormous effort to, to try and make sure that there were no... And there weren't. I mean, actually, in my entire period there, I have to say, nothing untoward happened. And everybody, both warders and fellow inmates, um, were extremely friendly. And the curious thing about fellow inmates is that they were extremely sympathetic, <laughs> oddly. <laughs> the other thing is I'm absolutely convinced of one policy change, which the Liberal Democrats need to change. Labour hasn't gone there. But the Liberal Democrats for many years championed voting for prisoners. Mm. Big mistake. <laughs> They're all Tories. LAUGHTER <laughs> 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 oh, On that note, uh, let's take some questions from the audience. So we'll, we'll, we'll bring the house lights up. If you've got a question for Chris, uh, please indicate clearly. We'll bring a microphone to you. Let us know your name. And we'll, here we go, the gentleman at the front. Here we go. Hi. Um, general question. Is this going to be a good election to lose? Um, I think it is. I mean, I don't think there are ever good elections to lose in the sense that it is always better, if you're in politics, to be in government. Most of government is about making bad decisions. So you're making a decision between something bad and something worse. Don't underestimate that. But it is important to be able to take those decisions to make sure that the people who you want to help, if you're on the progressive side of politics, the interest groups, the poor, the people who rely on public services, are actually not going to come out worst off. But if you mean by that, in general, is there worse coming down the track? Yes, undoubtedly. And I gave a sense of that in what I was talking about in terms of the what's happened to the pound and the increase in uh, prices that is just coming through now, and I don't know how quickly it will come through. But you are already getting into a fall in real earnings. We've already had, as I said, the longest period of stable and falling real earnings in our entire industrial history as an industrialized nation. And we're just, we were just coming out of it, two or three years of increase, and we're now going back into another fall. And I don't see any way around that, because I can't see anything that the government, any government can do which is going to persuade other than somehow going back to a status quo ante in terms of uh, uh, in terms of access to the European market, I can't see anything that would ex would persuade the foreign exchange markets that this country is worth a 10% revaluation of the pound. And that's what you'd be asking. So yes, in that sense, there's bad economic news coming down the but, track. But still, make sure you vote. There's a lady down the front. We'll get a microphone down here. Tristan. Hi, um, Ellie Park from London. So, very interesting what you're talking about in terms of the Progressive Alliance. So, totally understand in terms of compromising on your ideals as a political party, but how will the Lib Dems with nine seats ever make an impact unless they join the alliance? Well, my, my point is really not about joining an alliance or not joining an alliance. I think the party has always said 
that if we had the sort of system that we want, proportional representation, ideally the single transfer will do. The Irish, <laughs> I bore for Britain on that for a long time. It's a marvellous system, by the way. Um, but if you uh, had that sort of system, you would be going through coalition building as a matter of course, but you do that after the election, not before. So the, the real question, my point that I was making about the Progressive Alliance as a pre-election pact is I just don't think it will work. And it won't work because people in the centre will not vote for more left-wing parties or not in enough numbers to make a difference. And I saw this in the 1980s very, very clearly because my Labour friends, and I still have some, uh, you know, used to say, oh, you treachery, the SDP, you split the anti-Tory vote. Not true. Mm. The bizarre thing is it had not been for the SDP. I believe the Labour Party would have lost even worse in 83 and 87. Because if you actually looked at the second preferences of the SDP Liberal vote, they weren't Labour. Yeah. They were at best 50-50. So the vote would have gone each way. And at worst, actually, they were some of the polling was suggesting 70% towards the Tories. So if you'd taken the SDP Liberal Alliance mm. out of the equation in the 1980s, you wouldn't have got a progressive alliance if you'd had a deal between Labour and the SDP Liberal Alliance in the 1980s. You would have scared off precisely that slug of voters to the Tories. And that's exactly why the Tories played the line that they played in the last election. Mm. When you know they suddenly worked out, Lindsay Crosby suddenly worked out that this coalition of chaos line really worried people because you were going to have, you know, the Scots Nats, that dreadful Alex Salmond, as he then was, um, as leader, involved, and still not leader, <laughs> uh, but he's a Westminster, but not... Uh, and, and um, you know, actually, I think a lot of English people rather like Nicola Sturgeon running the government. Seems to be the most intelligent... I'm, sorry, Neil. But, but, uh, uh, the most intelligent politician in the UK by quite a long country mile. Um, but I do, I do think that uh, that is... You know, it's not an easy thing because political leaders and parties do not speak for their voters. Their voters want to vote for them, but they can't turn around and say... Now we want you to vote for Matt's lot. And Matt turns up around and says, now, you know, we want you to vote for Chris's lot. I mean, they're likely to turn around and give you a V sign and say, thank you, I'll make my own decision. <laughs> and, that, and they will. And that's the, that's the experience of France. That's why I gave you that rather convoluted, long answer about Republican discipline. But it is the experience of France that far-left votes go to the centre, but centre votes will not go to the left. Okay. There's another lady down at the front. We can ask for uh, one sentence questions and one sentence answers. <laughs> and then we can get out and a few more. Do you think the fact that the Lib Dems are not doing so well in the polls is anything to do with some of Tim Farron's more illiberal views? Well, I think there is a. I think, I think that Tim has an enormous number of qualities. I going to say gay friends. He is a Liberal Democrat and therefore he certainly has a lot of gay friends as well. Um, but I think that the, you are putting... Uh, there, there, is, there is a potential problem for any party. A party has to invest massively in the leader as the symbol of the values of the party. 
And, you know, the Liberal Democrats inevitably are a Liberal Party that believes and champions. Uh, you know, David Steele, after all, introduced the bill as a private member's bill with the support of Roy Jenkins when he was Labour Home Secretary. But it was a private member's bill introduced by a Liberal MP to decriminalise homosexuality uh, and then on abortion. So all of these things are absolutely in the DNA of the Liberal Democrats. And then you have a leader who needs to symbolise that. And, you know, the best one in the world, Tim, is uncomfortable with some of these issues, precisely because of his evangelical views. And so there, there is a sort of presentational issue to the extent that party leaders always are, God help Labour, but you know, party <laughs> leaders always are the symbol of their party. Because people, you know, most people are not anything like as interested in politics as a single, you know, everybody in this room. So people basically, conduct a shorthand operation. They're not going to look at the matter. They won't read the manifesto. They won't go into all the policy details. They'll have a look at the party leader and say, well, okay, go for him, go for her. And so party leaders really do matter. Okay, uh, there's, a, there's a young chap there. There's a gentleman on the balcony that would like to ask a question. The cheap seats, yes, sir. <laughs> I think they're actually the more expensive. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Um, hi, my name's Fred. I'm a Lib Dem member. Um, I think uh, I would have voted for you instead of Clegg if I'd been older. Um, <laughs> um, my point being, um, I'm getting fed up of knocking on doors and pretending to be um, a slightly softer Tory to the Tory voters and a slightly softer Labour voter to uh, Labour Party member to the Tory voters. And I think it's dra draining away our image. Uh, as a distinct party. I just want to know, what the hell do we do now? Because <laughs> we are... Yeah. Not so much a question from some of the audience, but the inner thoughts of Tim Farron. I <laughs> <laughs> well, I think, I think it depends, you know, what happens in terms of the debate after the election is going to be fascinating, and it will depend enormously on the election result. And as I've already said several times, you know, don't ask me, because... Uh, I'm certainly not in any better position than anyone else in this room to know what the hell is going to happen in the election. But I do think that there is going to be an enormous amount of rethinking and fluidity. Clearly the Tories are moving, or trying in this election campaign, to move on to a patch, sucking up a working class section of the vote, which has traditionally been Labour. You know, how successful is that going to be? Is it all going to be in the wrong places? Is it going to be in the right place? Is it going to be a very successful strategy? Is she going to end up with a 100-seat majority or is she going to end up not having a majority at all? Uh, and both of those are potential outcomes depending on where the votes are actually... Because one thing you cannot rely on in this situation is there being uniform swing across the country precisely because the vote has gone so low in some places and so high in others, you're not going to get uniform swing. So watch to see what happens in the election, but I think there is going to be fluidity. Am I confident that there will be a need for a Liberal Party? Yes. If that Liberal Party has a new name, I don't know. I mean, I've already been in, uh, you know, in, in, in uh, three different parties in terms of the name. The French are even more promiscuous about renaming their parties than we are. So, you know, that can happen. But am I absolutely convinced that Britain needs a 
sensible liberal party? Yes, and there will be one. The question is how long it will take. Okay, uh, yes, uh, right at the back, and then we'll go upstairs for the best question of the night. No pressure. <laughs> My my question is, on the subject of uh, climate change and energy, if you had a magic wand, what what one thing would you wish for? Well, um, I have to say, one of the things that happened when I went into politics is I traded in my magic wand, um, and therefore um, I don't think I've got one any longer. Um, I would love... uh, Donald Trump, having announced today that he's pulling out of the Paris Climate Change Agreement, to have a really storm-tossed, turbulent night, and to wake up with a tweet at 4.30 saying, no, I was wrong, we're staying in Paris. How about that? That would be important. I actually don't think that Trump is going to do as much damage as some people are worried about on climate change partly because I'm totally convinced that the genie is out of the bottle already in terms of renewables. And you've already had one of your wishes. And I've already had one of your wishes. So that's probably enough. Okay, so the best question of the night to the chap on the balcony. The microphone is coming. Here it comes. Here we go. I uh, don't know if it's the best question of the night, but talked about fr- uh, you talked about France a lot. Um, do you think that a Macron candidate could win here? And also, why can't we learn from them and have elections on Sundays? <laughs> <laughs> it was the best question tonight. I, I think actually there is um, a lot said for elections on Sundays. Um, maybe it has something to do with the fact that we used to have a real Sabbatarian movement, um, and uh, the French, being a Catholic country, never did. So um, that's one of the things. But I think that the. I've thought quite a bit about the parallels with Macron, and you can imagine that a lot of my uh, political friends in the Democrat and other parties have thought about that too. There is one enormous difference, sadly, which is that Macron could potentially remake the political map in France by standing in one election with one candidate, who then, if he wins, has the capacity to call an election for Parliament, for the Assemblée Nationale, and we will see what then happens. We do not have the same sort of presidential system. Uh, We would need to have a party, a Macron-style party, which had candidates in enough seats in Parliament to actually get 326 seats. So we would need 326 Macrons as opposed to one, and that's a tall order. It is. Um, quite a sort of sad end. Um, well, I'm sorry not to be more uplifting. I didn't. I, 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 I say I have. I find the state of uh, democratic politics pretty depressing, and I mean democratic, politics. not just liberal democratic. Not just liberal democratic. <laughs> That's easy, and I'm well endured to be able to handle that over many years of disappointments. But the reality is, I find, I find the broader picture very. Depressing. Let's say you had a, a magic wand that wasn't restricted to climate change, and it could be anything at all, and it didn't have to be political. It could be trivial. It could just be a treat for yourself. <laughs> what would 
what would you really do with the magic wand? Oh, Chelsea should have won the doll. <laughs> I, I was at the FA Cup final and I was gutted. <laughs> and I would say, you know, um, people would just say, uh, I was like that, that, that question people used to ask managers. These days you would ask Arsene Wagner and he'd say, ah? But, you, you know, it was, so, are you chuffed or chuffed, lad? <laughs> and, you know, if you ask that to most premiership managers, they wouldn't understand what the hell you were on about. Well, I was choked. So that's my answer. So there you go. Chelsea winning the double. Um, well, it's been an absolute pleasure, Chris. Thank you so much for coming. As always, you've been a wonderful audience. Next month, my guest is William Haig. And after the summer... Oh, and we're doing election night at Soho. I'm not sure if that has sold out yet. I think it probably has. And then, uh, later in the year, some phenomenal guests be announced. Um, for now, ladies and gentlemen, thank you, as always, for being such a great crowd. A massive thanks to Mr Chris Hune! Well, there you go. That was Chris Hune. What a fascinating fella. And what an enjoyable company. Uh, he and I actually had done two interviews that day. He was a guest on my show Unspun, which there are still two episodes left, depending on when you listen to this, and you can get free tickets to that through the website TV Recordings. Uh, the next two shows are the 4th and the 7th of June. Of course, don't forget to vote on June the 8th. And on the evening of June the 8th, I'm doing a special election night show at the Soho Theatre. I think it may be sold out, but do contact the venue because there may be returns on the day. Um, my next guest at the political party is William Haig at the end of June, something I am very excited about. And then uh, I'll be releasing the guests for later in the year over the summer. Thank you, as always, for downloading this. Now, I didn't realise this until recently, but if you review these things on iTunes, apparently that helps. Now, uh, I would obviously prefer it if you gave it... A nice review. Thinking of giving a bad review, maybe don't bother. But uh, there we are. As always, thanks for downloading, and I'll see you soon. Ta-ra. Shopify helps you sell at every stage of your business. Like that, let's put it online and see what happens stage. And the site is live. That we opened a store and need a fast checkout stage. Thanks. You're all set. That count it up and ship it around the globe stage. This one's going to Thailand. And that, wait, did we just hit a million orders stage? Whatever your stage, businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for your $1 a month trial at shopify.com slash listen.